book of 1 Samuel. Um, 1 Samuel. Now, before we actually get into reading it, let me just say something. You know, we, we are typically in the American church trained to study God's word um, through the epistles. That's what we're used to. And there's a tendency when you study the epistles to look at every jot and tittle. When you get to Old Testament narrative, you're not necessarily always going to cover everything, but you're going to cover the, the flow and the theme and the plot line. And uh, so it's always a little different. Now today, um, in our text, we, we kind of step away from the narrative and we, we jump into uh, poetry. And um, so it's always, it's always a joy just to be able to kind of adjust the different genres and just to learn from what God is doing through those different genres. So today we're going to be reading um, from 1 Samuel chapter 2, and Peter's going to come and he's going to lead us. If you would stand and let us read um, this song, this prayer by Hannah, and uh, we'll do that together. 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and rises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He rises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail, shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. through your word this morning, and that you would uh, impact, Lord, our, our hearts and our lives, Lord, with the truth that is revealed in this passage. Would you allow me to simply be your messenger, and uh, Lord, in proclaiming your truth, Lord, that your church would be strengthened, Lord, to do your will, in your name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. I wanna begin this morning with a question. Uh, it's a question that I think is important for us, uh, for every person, for every believer in particular, but it's a question that will frame uh, our time in this particular passage of Scripture. And it's a very simple question, and it's this. How do you view life? What is the means by which you look at and evaluate life? And this has been a question that philosophers have been asking for years. And uh, one a well-known mathematician years ago by the name of Descartes 
came to the following conclusion after he wrestled with all of his doubts. He said, I think, therefore I am. Um, I personally like the, um, the elf version of that. Um, not elf, alf version. Remember alf? He said, I shed, therefore I am. I think there's much more substance in that statement. Uh, but you know what Descartes' view of life that is born out of that statement has fashioned and shaped so much of our society. And one of the reasons it's done so is because it is very self-centered. It's man-centered. Just think about this. This is ultimately the greatest form of idolatry where I am the center of the universe. I think, therefore, I am. Now, how we think will determine how we view life. What we think will determine how we look at life. So if we think that we are at the center, that we will be reflected, or that will be reflected in how we uh, view life. If we think that God is at the center, then that will change everything about how we view life and how we view the purpose of living life should be. J. Gresham Machen says this, every Christian must think about God. Every Christian, to some degree, must be a theologian. In fact, the men right now are starting a study in a book by R.C. Sproul called Everyone's a Theologian. Everyone has a theology. Everyone has a belief system. The question is, what is it? How do you view life? Now, this is really important for us because it is God who explains life. I want you to think about this. Without Christ, our minds are affected. They are debased. Romans tells us that. They are hardened. They are blind. Our heart is futile, hostile. But when we come to the place where God has breathed new life into us, something changes in the arena of our heart or the arena of our mind. Our minds are redeemed. They are, I want to say, restored. Now, because of Christ, we comprehend the glory of God. We see the beauty of who God is and what he is doing. We see ourselves in this, this wonderful outflow of his redemptive plan, being part of it, but not the complete picture of it. And so our minds and our hearts have been redeemed. Our minds and our hearts have also been renewed. We're a new creation with a new song, transformed by the renewing of our minds, we find Paul saying in Romans 12 too. Renewed in the spirit of our minds, Ephesians 4, 23. And those are key aspects to our growth in Christ, this ongoing renewing of our minds. The means by which we grow, the means by which we mature in Christ. But this is only possible because of Christ. And then our minds and hearts are illuminated by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit then that gives us the awareness, the ability to understand the word of God. 
And as we study God's word, he, he begins to teach us through his word, but it's the Holy Spirit with the word of God that begins to impart knowledge and insight and perspective that we so desperately need. So how do you view life? Is your view of life an outflow of a redeemed, renewed, and illuminated mind? Hannah is praying, she's singing a song of praise, and this song is a reflection and an outflow of how Hannah viewed life. What she sings um, is now recorded for us in this song of praise to God. And it unfolds for us in three movements that are all rooted really in one issue. They're rooted and rested in a knowledge of God. She has an awareness of who God is. She has an understanding of who God is. God has revealed himself in the past. She's prayed a prayer based on how God has revealed himself, appealing to his promises, appealing to his character. And as a result of that prayer, she is settled, if you remember. And then God does ultimately provide for her a son by the name of Samuel. Now, if you remember last week, we, we, we just made it a note here to say that not everyone who was barren can come to this passage and claim this as God's promise for them, that he is going to provide a child. That is what God chose to do in Hannah's situation. That may not be what he chooses to do in your situation. So we've got to be careful how we approach this passage. But the reality is that God has been at work in her life, and she is now viewing life based on her experience with God and her understanding of who he is. And so Hannah's song is a response to God's faithfulness to her, but it's also instructive and celebrating God's faithfulness to all his people. So this is, this is for us. It's not just us sitting back and saying, isn't that nice that Hannah had this song? This is for us also, and we, we see the truth of God coming from this song as a means by which we can have a greater understanding of how we view life and how we view life for the glory of God. And what we see in the first unfolding then is this. We see how God works in Hannah. How God works in Hannah. So last time we saw Hannah pray, she was in great pain and she was deeply distressed and she wept bitterly, chapter one, verse 10. She was not in a good place. And if you remember, she had, she had gotten to this place over just repeated, countless years, coming to the temple with the family, being uh, mocked and ridiculed and persecuted and irritated by Penina, who had many children. Now we see a different Hannah. <laughs> There's a change that's taken place in her. We see the difference that God has made in her life. And it's evident in her heart, it's evident in her strength, it's evident in her mouth and what she says. It was overwhelming. And so she bursts into prayer, into praise, into song. A troubled and vexed heart is now rejoicing in the God of Israel. And friends, there's no trouble that you're in that you cannot turn to God and have your pain and your struggle and your suffering 
be replaced by a joy, not necessarily a happiness, but a joy that is a constant because you understand the character of God. You understand God's purposes based on how he has revealed himself in the affairs of man already and how he has revealed himself in his character in the pages of his word. And friends, we need that desperately. And I want you to notice, first of all, what I'm calling um, Hannah's joy, the joy of Hannah's salvation. Look at verse one. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Let's look at these these three statements here. This, This idea of the heart. The heart is the center of the person. It is who they are at the core of their being. Now scripture uses a number of different words to describe the heart. I've used the word mind. Soul, spirit, inner man. These are all words that are interchangeable with this arena of the, this, this, this person that is the core of their being. Take away your physical body. The, the you that is left is your heart, so to speak, right? It is the place where you think, where you plan. It is the place where you are experiencing your emotions. It's where your will resides. And she says, my heart exalts in the Lord. My heart is is recognizing and joyfully praising the goodness of God and the presence of God and the power of God in my life. And then we look at this other word here, this my horn. This is a picture here of an animal who has who has uh, beaten a rival animal. So just imagine maybe um, two. Uh, male sheep who are battling it out or two male deer that are battling it out and one of them is victorious. And what does that animal do? What does that male animal do? He now prances around to show all of the other sheep, to show all of the rest of the herd that he is victorious. And so there there is this kind of lifting up of the person, of this animal, in the context that is there to demonstrate a victory, and to demonstrate a joy. And there, that, that, that picture now is brought into Hannah's situation because she is, in a sense now, a changed woman with a changed circumstances because of God being at work in her life. And she is lifted up, so to speak. Her horn now, it says, uh, exalts in the Lord. She's celebrating. and She is demonstrating by her circumstances that God is faithful. And then we have this picture of my mouth. My mouth derides my enemies. The picture here is of the mouth of a predator, such as a lion or a tiger, tiger roaring after capturing its prey. You know, you, you, see, you see like on cartoons and stuff like that, you know, right? But that's, that's the picture of this, this animal getting ready to strike, or having been victorious with the prey under it, now roaring to let everyone know that it's been successful, to let every other animal around, especially the ones that are of its kind and species, know that it has captured its prey. And and so there's these pictures that are going on here. All three of these activities describe thoughts and behavior that flow out of the joy that she has experienced because of God's salvation. Because I rejoice in your salvation, it says. These three things are true. 
because I rejoice in your salvation. Now friends, there's a word that has lost its luster. The word salvation. The word saved. I mean, you know, we, we used to ask people, hey, when were you saved? Right? And, and, and anymore, it's kind of a word that's kind of like, well, how about we change, you know, that word a little bit. Let's talk about, you know, when did I repent of my sins? Or when was I born again? And even that, born again, you're like, oh, I don't want to use that because that was kind of like taken by our culture to mean something else. And this, this word saved is really a deep theological word. Let's not forget that. There's something beautiful and wonderful about it. And we want to we recapture it and we want to elevate it. She is rejoicing in her salvation. She's rejoicing in the fact that the God of the universe, the God of Israel, looked on her, remembered her, acknowledged her in her time of need, and ultimately gave her a son. And so now she is rejoicing in the salvation that he provided for her, but not just for her, because that salvation would also be the beginnings, I would say the re-beginnings, of the salvation of Israel again. Now why would salvation be unpopular in the kind of day in which we live? Because we live amongst people who do not want to recognize any need of being saved. If you don't recognize what you're doing as being sinful, then there's no need for a savior. And so it has lost its luster. But Hannah cried out to God, and the Lord remembered her. So there's a change in her heart. There's a change in her perspective. There's a change in her attitude and how she views life. And it's all based on what she now reveals to us as the unique character of God. It's really beautiful, the songs that we sang this morning flowing right out of this song because the, the songs that we sang reflect her, her memory and her, her um, resting on the character of God that we sang this morning. Let's read verse two. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Now I want to take it out of order here. I want to take the, the second description here of the character of God. I want to focus on that. But before I do that, I just want you to think about Exodus 15, 11. Because this is, this is, how, you know, this is how she comes to that conclusion. She's building her understanding on what has already been revealed by Moses. Moses says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Does that sound like anything we sang this morning? And so I just want you to understand that Hannah is, is not simply standing independently of everything else that has gone on in the history of Israel. She is building upon what Israel has already been taught what they already know to be true and she's reaching back and she's now repeating it and she's finding her, herself clinging to the same God that was revealed to Moses and Abraham. First of all, God is incomparable. Incomparable. There is none besides you. There is no God beside you. As you look around the other nations, you remember what we talked about before. The other nations had their, had their God that was kind of like their, 
their cheerleader, their, their mascot, so to speak. And each, each nation had their God, and maybe one time there'd be a victory. Oh, that God's powerful this time, and next time, that God's powerful this time. And what God is saying is, listen, that is not how it is. There is one God, big capital G, God. There are no gods, little g, besides you. There is no God who compares to you. Any God with a little g that is brought up in comparison to you isn't even in the same category. They are at best man-made attempts to understand the world. They're at, maybe say, at worst, a devil-made attempt to counterfeit the true God and to control the people of this world. But there is no God beside him. There is only one God. And she is praising him for that reality. Secondly, God is holy. There is none like or none holy like the Lord. The word holy means to be set apart, it's pure. He's always right and always does what is right. Why is that true? There's a lot of attributes that would answer that question, but one of them is his, his holiness. The thing I love about the attributes of God is all of his attributes fashion and shape all the other attributes, right? So we say God is a God of love, is that true? Yes, but he's also a God of holy love, righteous love, just love, wrathful love. All his attributes fashion and shape one another, and here he is, holy, he is a holy God. So he always is right and always does what is right. He will always act justly and fairly. He does not, nor can he be, committed to sin in any way, shape, or form. He is apart from sin, and he doesn't act in any way that is sinful. He is holiness, and his holiness is only transferable through the cross of Christ. You and I, when we come to know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, are not holy because we somehow have done something to appease God. We're only holy because of an alien holiness that comes and rests on us, and that holiness is the holiness of Christ. We are clothed in his righteousness. We are protected by his holiness. But not only is he holy, he is also a refuge. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. This rock is a picture of a, of a, a cave, so to speak, way up in a mountain where you are safe from any enemies, any predators. And God is a God who protects. He's a God who keeps safe. He's a God who keeps people secure. He's a place where you can find safety and security throughout life. So what Hannah is saying is this. She went to God in her crisis and she found him to be holy, unique, holy, incomparable, a place of refuge. Now, just think about what she went through. Did Hannah need a place of refuge? Did she need to, to, to just be reminded that all these wrongs done against her would be judged by a holy God. You know, she is appealing to this 
this God that has been revealed to Israel already. So we find, first of all, then, how Hannah, or how God works in Hannah. Secondly, I want us to see how God works in the world. And we go now from verses three to verse eight. And I want us, first of all, to think that, that as she transitions from this, this kind of personal evaluation of my experience, now what she's doing is she's gonna be presenting simply how God works in the world in which she lives, and it would transfer over to us to say, this is still how God works in the world in which we live. He is, first of all, a God who knows and cares. Sorry, knows and weighs. It shouldn't say knows and cares. It should be knows and weighs, although he does care. It says, talk no more so very proudly, and let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. I want you to think about this. A God of knowledge is a God who knows. He's not a distant God. He is an intimate God. He is directly linked with the affairs of man. He's not a God who simply created the world and just kind of stepped back and let it be. He's a God that when he created the world and breathed life into man, continued to interact with man in an intimate way. And that hasn't changed. So he's a God who knows. He cannot be deceived. There are no secrets with him. And so this is a comfort for us who are followers of Christ, but it's also a discomfort for those who stand opposed to him. And I would say it's a discomfort for us who are followers of Christ who are opposed to him in the context of being followers of Christ. There are times when we choose not to listen to him. And when we're reminded of the fact that he knows, there is discomfort. And we wrestle. But friends, I want to focus in here on the comfort side of things. In the affairs of this world, God knows. And for us, that should be a place of comfort. Because when there is injustice done to us by others, in particular by others who are not believers, who may be seeking to persecute us, guess what? God knows. He's not somehow blindsided by it all. He's not blindsided about what's happening in the Middle East. You know, Islam moving into cities, taking people out, and giving them options of what they can do. Murdering. Just carrying on that way. Or recently, just a couple of days ago, someone because they wouldn't convert to Islam was, was, was beheaded in the workplace. The person was fired because they were proselytizing in the workplace, and this is what resulted. Why? This was not some kind of a wacko crime. This was, this was Islam at work. And guess what? God knows. These things happen. They're tragic. They're awful. But God is not blind to the affairs of man. He knows exactly what's taking place. And friends, that should be a comfort to us. So those who shake their fist at God and commit atrocities against Christians, they're not hidden from God. He knows who they are. And you can be sure that their actions are being weighed by God, and his wrath will be poured out on all who remain in opposition to him. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, it may not be the next year. All right, 
Our Marines may not be the ones that exercise judgment, but you can be sure of this, God will. He will. And we ought to be more concerned about eternal judgment than earthly judgment. And sometimes we get more caught up with the earthly justice than the eternal justice that awaits those who are opposed to God. Now maybe we'd be satisfied at both if we were honest with ourselves. But do we really know God and know that he weighs? Now, on the other hand, pride and arrogance do not believe God or care that he knows. You know, I, I use an illustration of drastic things against God, but even pride and arrogance that, that is so much a part of our culture that says, you actually worship the God of the Bible? I mean, how old-fashioned is that? You know, you have to rest on this crutch to get yourself through life. I guess there's something weak in you. You have to fill that void with something. And all these kind of belittling statements that are really arrogance and pride. Arrogance and pride do not believe God or care that he even knows. They deny the uniqueness of God in their attitudes, in their actions, in their words. And so man should take note In the presence of God, human arrogance is totally misplaced and even dangerous in view of the Lord's way of balancing out human experience. Now, it's really important just as we come to the the end of this little section because what we're going to find now as we go to verses 4 through 8 is that God balances out in ways that are countercultural. So we look now at, at at verse 5 or sorry, four and following. And we're gonna begin to see that he is a God not only who knows and weighs, but he is a God who exalts and humiliates. And these are ways of, of cultural expectation that God turns upside down, cultural norms and beliefs that are turned on their head. And Hannah, in her prayer, reflecting on her own circumstances, is looking around and saying, this is how God is at work in the affairs of man. This is how she views the world, through the lens of God. First of all, he delivers the feeble. The way of evolution is the way of the mighty, is it not? The survival of the fittest is the the way of secular, sophisticated culture, but God has something to say about the might of the survival of the fittest. Read verse four. The bows of the mighty are what? Broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Well, we're strong, we're the fittest, we're the ones that are gonna make it work. Not so, God says. I work in a different way, a countercultural way, a way that is not how you typically would think, but it is my way nonetheless. And God works his will in the world many times through the feeble, or at least what appears to be feeble to the average person looking on. Chapter 17 of 1 Samuel tells us the story of David and Goliath. Little David comes and stands up against mighty Goliath. I mean, isn't, isn't that just the, the, the epitome of might against feebleness? I mean, even Goliath's response 
You know, who do you think you are, David? Am I a dog? You're going to insult me? And the world of that day was made up of the armies of Israel and the Philistines. And they stood in awe as the might of the Philistines was taken down by the feebleness of this little shepherd boy, David. Oh, how the mighty are broken and the feeble bind on strength. Not only does he deliver the feeble, he delivers the hungry. The tables are turned once again, but not in the arena of power, but now in the arena of plenty. Those who were full, it says, have hired themselves out for bread. Just think about that. Those who were, past tense, full, have hired themselves out for bread. They're now working at the checkout stand at Safeway. They're picking strawberries at the local fields. They're out working what you might consider the low-end jobs that are available simply because they have to put food on the table. But they were once full. And then it goes on and says, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Okay, just a total turning upside down of the way that man typically thinks. So those who have much, who have been confident in their living because of their plenty are now hiring themselves out simply to put food on the table. And again, there is something in the story of 1 Samuel that is worth noting that reflects this truth. It's found in chapter 25. And in chapter 25, we, we, we see this principle played out when David sends 10 young men to appeal to a man by the name of Nabal, a man of wealth, who, a man who owns lots of sheep and, and was having his sheep sheared. And while that was all taking place, David's men protected those sheep shearers helped them, provided for them. And so David is sending these 10 men to Nabal saying, listen, we've run out of food. Could you help us out? Could you help feed us? Is there something that you can do? And Nabal basically responds by insulting David in his refusal. Um, You know, David didn't take that lightly, let's just say. And he gathered 400 of his men, armored, armored, ready for battle, and start marching themselves down to where Nabal lived, and while that's all happening, the servants approached Abigail, Nabal's wife, and told her what had happened, and so she quickly, it's really quite a story, um, she quickly has 20 or 200 loaves of bread made, packs a bunch of wine, five prepared sheep, I'm assuming prepared sheep means they've already been slaughtered and they're ready to eat, Um, grain, raisins, 200 fig cakes. That's what you call a peace offering potluck. Okay? And she meets David while he's coming down and basically says, listen, my, my husband's a jerk. We won't find that word in scripture, but that's the idea of what's going on. And he has treated you badly in a way that he should not have. And I beg your forgiveness. And it was enough. It was enough for David to say, you know, I'm not going to go down and and commit this blood slaughter, and you are providing for me. And so Abigail, uh, at, at David's request, goes back 
home. And then the next morning, um, Abigail turns to her husband and tells him what David was going to do. And this is what we find in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verses 37 and 38. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. What are we talking about here? We're talking here about those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. You see, there's, there's, a way, there's a way that God works in the affairs of this world that runs contrary to how the world thinks. And those who have plenty can find themselves having nothing. And those who are hungry can find themselves satisfied. It's just the way that God works. So the point is that provision for human need is not dependent fully on human resources. Man's prosperity does not guarantee his security. It is only in the rock of Christ that we are fully prosperous and secure. My friends, that is true for all of us. And these principles ring true today just as much as they rang true back then as Hannah is looking at the world around her. Not only does he deliver um, the feeble and the hungry, he also delivers the barren. And certainly Hannah is thinking about herself, but he's thinking about others too, and others even yet to come. And so she's reflecting, and this is what she says, the barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. So you have here a fruitful, fruitful womb um, is not a guarantee of happiness and security. Just because you have more kids doesn't mean that you're gonna be happier. It may start out looking and seeming prosperous, but over time, it is forlorn. In other words, it's fading away. Now, it's not saying don't be fruitful and multiply. It's just saying if you think that finding your happiness is guaranteed because you have more and more kids, it actually is open door to more and more trouble. And just think in the future of the kind of trouble that came to the line of Israel. And all the big families, even say you know, the, the children of Israel made up of these 12 brothers, right, who are bickering and fighting and conflicted and all that kind of stuff is going on. But a barren womb is not something that God cannot change. He is a God who can change a woman's circumstance when he chooses to and if he chooses to. In Hannah's case, she would go on to have a total of six children. Chapter 2, 21 tells us that. Three more sons and two daughters. So the number seven here is, is, sim, is a symbolic picture for the full granting of her desires and for those who are also barren. He delivers the barren. And like I said before, this is not a promise to all those who are barren that God will grant them children. It is, however, a reminder of the fact that God works in this world in ways that counter the cultural norms. The satisfaction and joy can be found in those who are truly suffering, and that emptiness and longing can be found in those who have plenty. I think it's interesting when, when 
you, know, you find out, here, here's this rich family, and you find out that behind the facade of all the nice things that they have is chaos. They may have money, but they're miserable. Okay? And so, so what is our goal? Our goal, then, as followers of Christ is not to, not to pick up on the cultural norms of the world. It's to pick on the biblical ideals of scripture and say this is what God has called us to and it may mean that we have plenty it may mean that we have riches it may mean that we're living even at a poverty level but we're doing it for the glory of God and we're trusting in his provision day to day and with greater wealth comes greater responsibility and with greater wealth comes greater responsibility to care for others and to care for the church and to care for the kingdom of God greater wealth comes greater possibility for sinfulness. God's ways are not the kind of marketing strategy that would make for a good midnight infomercial. Right? Now, I haven't watched TV for a long time because we don't, personally just don't have cable, we just use like Netflix or something like that. But I remember the times when they, I couldn't sleep and I'd get up and there was a guy by the name of Tom Wu that was always on, right? And he was on this yacht all the time. And, ah, you want what I want? Then you just do this. You know, follow my rules and principles and I don't know if anyone bought anything, but if God laid out his method for being successful in life based on these things, people would look at it and say, that's not what I want because they're fashioned and shaped by the norms of the culture. It runs counter to what the culture says should be the way that you live your life. God also delivers the dead. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. This is probably the most shocking of the couplets in this song. The Lord kills. Are we okay with that? He brings to life. Oh, we're okay with that. But the Lord kills. He brings down to Sheol, to the grave, and he raises up. Some of the idea behind that statement um, seems to be more, he, he brings people down to the, the brinks of death, so to speak, maybe a health issue or something like that, but then he also raises people up. But there may even be some future-looking connection here to a resurrection. Just a little seed, just a little glimmer. The Lord kills, and he raises up. Did the Lord kill someone on a cross? Sure did. His son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross. That was all part of the plan. But he also raised him up. Now, I may be reading far more into this, but there is something future-looking here when it says the Lord kills and he brings to life. When it seems like it's all done and it's over, he lifts up. The fifth one is this. He delivers the poor. The Lord makes poor the rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And I, I'm, as I'm reading that and having gone through Ephesians already, my mind just goes to Ephesians chapter one. Again, just he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. What happens to all believers according to Ephesians one? We have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus and we have been seated with him 
in the heavenlies. That sounds pretty much like what we're just reading here. This is a, just a wonderful reminder of what we have been told in the book of Ephesians about where we are in reality in our relationship with God now that we're his children, blessed with spiritual blessings, seated with Christ in the heavenly places with an inheritance that guarantees our place and position in the family of God. So when it comes down to it, poverty and riches are in the hand of God. We don't determine them, only he does. They are not determined or guaranteed by where you were born, by the color of your skin, by the family you come from, or the intelligence that you have. Both poverty and riches are under his control. And so this is how Hannah understands God's work in the world. This is how she views life in this world. And she's reminding us that we are to look at the world around us through God's eyes. You've seen me do this before. If you have your Bibles, just lift them up and follow with me. If you have your iPad, it may not work. Um, but you know, I like, to, I like just to demonstrate this. This is how God wants us to view life, right? We're looking at life through the lens of his word. And it's just, just a way to picture that. The word of God reveals to me the thoughts and the heart and the mind of God. And through my understanding and my growing understanding, I have a, a clearer picture of what this world is like. So I wanna, I wanna learn to, to look at the world like this. And so she's reminding us that we are to look at the world around us through God's eyes to see what matters to him. And if, if you're in a position of distress, to lean on God's sovereign hand to guide you through and that he has not abandoned you. And if you're in a position of security and satisfaction, don't get too comfortable because that might be taken away from you by a sovereign God that has other plans. This is the reality of life. Who is in control? Well, you may think that you're in control, but ultimately God is in control. And we ought to be okay with that. And we ought to be settled that, that when we rest in God, who is in control of all that, that we're in the right place. But if we've been so fashioned by the thinking and the culture of the world, what God says is countercultural. So we need to wrestle ourselves back to the place where we're embracing what he says to be true, as true, and trust him in it. So we've seen here that that he's the God who knows and care or knows and and weighs. He is the God who exalts and humiliates. Finally, he is the God who creates and sustains. Look at the last part then of verse eight. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. So behind all that you see in this world is a God who created the world and who sustains the world. This world is not the result of a big bang that came out of nothing. It is the result of a big word spoken in a moment. God created the world by the word of his mouth, and he is the one who holds it all together. And you might look at the planet and say, it is science that holds the world together. I would say, you know what, it might appear that way. But there is a God who is holding the science that holds the world together. Understand that? He's back behind it. He's the one that establishes the principles of the science 
that holds the world together. But mankind chooses to want to ignore that God and just look at simply the created world as the end in and of itself. He is the one who keeps the atoms together. He is the one who keeps the planets in their orbits. He is the one who created the fog that cleans the air in the Bay Area in which we live, unlike LA, right? He's the one that does all that. So this is how God works in the world that Hannah sees, and it's, it's how God is working in the world that we live in. He knows and weighs today still. He exalts and humbles today still. He creates and sustains today still. Is that your view of life in this world? And we go to this last section. We've seen how God works in Hannah. We've seen God, how God works in the world. And now I want us to move to this last section here where we find out how God works in the end. What began as a description of Hannah's experience and understanding of God, Hannah view, continued as a description of how God is at work in the world. A worldview is now being finished out with a description of the fuller, global, and eternal reality of how God works in the end. An end view. A micro-salvation, so to speak, with Hannah, now turns to a macro-salvation, and there'll be winners, there'll be losers, There'll be a king. The words of this song take in Hannah's experience and the world that she lived in, but it also takes us out beyond Hannah's life into the ongoing world of Israel's future history. So there's, there's something that's happening here that is not simply limited to what she can see. Now what she's gonna be talking about is future. Now what she's gonna be explaining is something yet to come, even outside of Israel. And what we're told here is this. First of all, the faithful will be protected. Verse nine, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. And so God reiterates his faithfulness to those who are his. The promises of God given to both Abraham and Moses are backed up by the presence of God. He guards the feet of his faithful as they journey through future history to the end. And in the end, the might of the wicked will not and cannot stand against God and his armies. They will not prevail. They will be cut off, it says. Ultimately, they will be cut off from God for eternity. And so the faithful will be protected. Then we have the wicked who will be broken. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. So the wicked, also known here as the adversaries of the Lord, will have their doom. God's wrath will thunder out of heaven to execute a just judgment on their unbelief. Because God is the God who knows. Psalm 1, verses five and six. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, 
nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And then there will be a king who will be exalted. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So this song, friends, has been, has been driving toward this last verse that is a climax. And what is clear to us is that it is prophetic. Notice the three things that are talked about just in this, this last little section here. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. The Lord who knows and weighs, who is unique, who is holy, will judge And that judging will be a holy, righteous judging of the wicked, of the unbeliever. And so Hannah here is speaking clearly outside of the world of her circumstances. And she's pushing us now to a future day, a future event, a future time when God will judge the wicked. And of course this is driving us to Revelation 20 and verse 11 where we're told about this great white throne judgment. And this is where all who refuse to um, believe God will be judged before God and it's at that time that every knee will bow and will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But those who are followers of Christ They will not stand in that great white throne judgment. They will be judged at what's called the Bema Seat, which is a completely different kind of judgment. It's more like a a celebration and a time of rewards. But the great white throne judgment is the means by which the wrath of God ultimately is going to come to bear on each individual who has said, no, God, I will not believe. And they will be taken and cast into the lake of fire. See, for us, God poured out his wrath, not on us, but on his son. And he did that on the cross. He was our substitute. He took our place. We deserve that wrath. But those who do not believe in Christ are awaiting that wrath. It is yet to come for them. We are protected from it. So friends, the king will be exalted The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Secondly, he will give strength to his king. He will give strength to his king. This is a remarkable statement, as there was not a king in Israel at this time. Now, she may have been reflecting on some things that were said, because there were hints, there were indications. There even was a clear statement in Deuteronomy 17 that God says, I will bring you a king once you get into the land. But that had not taken place yet. There was no king in Israel, if you remember. Everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. And yet here in this song, she is prophetically looking ahead, thinking about the king that God would provide. He would give strength to his king. And in the context of 1 and 2 Samuel, Ultimately, that, that, that answer to that king would fall on the shoulders of a man by the name of David. 
Number three, though, he will exalt the horn of his anointed. And so this idea of horn is is restated here. This metaphor is restated here that there will be a king who is lifted up. There is a king who rises up over the people by God. And so this idea of horn is kind of like a, a bracket that holds this song together. She's talking about her horn, her experience, her struggle, her deliverance. And at the end here, this song is talking about God's provision through the deliverance of a horn, a king who's going to be lifted up. David will be lifted up for all to see. And then, of course, Christ will be lifted up for all to see. My friends, I want to just draw attention now to some some concluding thoughts. First of all, I want us to think through Hannah's logic. Hannah's logic. What is, what is it that she is doing in this song that is helpful for us? Well, she's arguing from the lesser to the greater. She's showing her experience, and then she's moving out to the greater experience of mankind, in particular, the greater experience of all those who are followers of Christ. So how God deals with Hannah is simply a sample of the way God works in this world and the way he will work when he ushers in the end. Dale Davis says it this way. The saving help Yahweh gave Hannah is a foretaste, a scale model demonstration of how Yahweh will do it when he does it in grand style. Here's the point, every time one of God's servants enters into the bog or the marsh of suffering and trials and through prayer and dependence on God experiences God lifting them up and setting them on a rock, every time that happens, it is a sample of the coming kingdom of God. It is a snapshot of the full-blown IMAX deliverance that God will do in the last day. Here is Hannah, her deliverance and the scale of everything else that happens in this world is really, really small, but it is a sample, it is a snapshot that pushes us to that time when the Lord will come and he will ultimately deliver his people. And every time you and I go through suffering and God provides for us, it's an opportunity not only to praise him for his present deliverance, but it's also an opportunity for us to be reminded about his ultimate deliverance, which is a promise for us all, which sustains us, which keeps us focusing on where we need to go. Yesterday, a number of us in here um, went to a wedding. Um, We went to uh, see Dennis and Danielle uh, Braga um, commit their vows to one another, and so a great time and there was a time of course in, in that wedding and with other weddings where there is an exchanging of the rings and I'm sure if you are a bride after getting married you didn't go home and say to your ring oh ring you know I, I love you so much ring I'm so looking forward to our years together you're not consumed with the ring why because you recognize that the ring is what a symbol 
of something greater. And so there's something symbolic. There's something that even the suffering that Hannah experienced and the deliverance that she experienced that is symbolic about how God works, not just in the affairs of Hannah and the world, but also how God works in the end. He has something purposeful, certain, glorious, yet awaiting all of his children. So every trial and deliverance, every crisis prayed for that God answers, every sin overcome by the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God is a symbol of the greater deliverance of salvation that still awaits us and the whole of creation. So friends, when we are enduring our suffering with God's help, we're to be reminded of how to wait, how to groan, how to endure our present experience, longing for that final salvation that only can come through him. My friends, that's a helpful reminder. Our suffering is real, but the deliverance that God promises is certain, and it is yet to come, and it is also real. That's Hannah's logic. Now I want us to move to what I'm calling Hannah's link. And I would like for us now to go to 2 Samuel chapter 22. 2 Samuel chapter 22, because we found now in chapter two of 1 Samuel, Hannah's song, and she's talking about a king, and that king that God ultimately will provide, he will allow the people of Israel to choose their king, and it's Saul, but ultimately the king that he has in mind is David, and David comes and he rules on the throne at the end of David's life. David sings a song. So there's a link now to the song that David is going to sing. 2 Samuel 22, that's verses 2 through 51. We don't have time to read the whole thing, but we'll, we'll pick up just a couple of points in here. Look at verses 2 through 4. And just as I read, just be looking for the similarities. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I am saved from my enemies. There's that word saved again. No small word. Hannah uses it to talk about her situation. David uses it in a greater way to talk about his situation. There's that word horn the horn of my salvation, the power of my salvation that only comes from Christ, from God. And look at verses 50 and 51. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. So what Hannah was prophesying through her song at the beginning of 1 Samuel, David now reflects that God has done. But I want you to notice something. Look at verse 51 again. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David, and his offspring. What? Forever. With that, I want you to now turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, we have Mary's song. Mary's song. 
Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my, what? Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. He is whole and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Does any of this sound familiar to you? He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy and spoke, he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring, what? Forever. Let me ask you a question. Is the Bible connected? Absolutely. And when Mary is praying and singing. She's looking back and she's thinking about these promises and she's thinking probably about Hannah because Hannah was a great example for women, right? To go back and think about what she is saying and how God dealt with the people of Israel all through the years. That's what she's talking about here. God's mercy is remembered to Abraham and his offspring forever. There's one more. Look just a few verses down to verse 68 and 69. This is Zechariah's prophecy now. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now friends, let me just, just tell you something. Hannah's song was about Hannah and her experience. But God providentially speaks through Hannah to help us see the various threads of truth that are running through Hannah's experience that go from before her to beyond her into the New Testament, into the coming of Jesus himself, who is the horn of our salvation. So Hannah sings this song and links it to Israel's future history without knowing the specifics of how it links. But God, in his providence, carries out his redemption plan and the truths unfold and the truths fall into place according to God's timetable, according to God's purposes. And they land on this person by the name of Jesus Christ, who is the king, who is the anointed, who is the one who's sitting on the throne of heaven, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who knows, who knows, knows our distress, knows our trial, knows the trouble that we're in, and in his own sovereignty determines how he will deliver, presently in this world, ultimately in the end, would help us today to be settled in our understanding of who you are, to be amazed 
at the way in which your word is tied together. How you would use a, a humble servant like Hannah to be the mouthpiece to demonstrate your glory, to praise you and adore you through the trial that she's been through in such a way, Lord, that we can, can see your mighty acts through the ages culminate in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, who's lifted us up and seated us up in the heavenlies with him, with every spiritual blessing. It's an amazing reality, Lord, that we as your children have been gifted not only Christ, but all the benefits that come with him. Or would you allow the truths of this song just to settle and to rest in our heart, Lord, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to, to draw us, Lord, to a place where we are we're, we're humbling ourselves completely and totally under your care, under your sovereignty, under your provision, seeking to give you honor, to exalt you, to praise you, for your work among your people. Oh Lord, you're a great God. We are so undeserving. But Lord, we are so thankful. Strengthen us, Lord, with your word, in your name. Amen.